I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Just a couple of things that I'll be centering on this morning. And that first thought is that the angel told Joseph to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife, for that which was conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be talking about that this morning, but also with an emphasis on Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. I love this time of year, and it is a special time of year, and what we have the honor and privilege of doing is celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, and not only celebrating that, but giving our testimony of what the Lord has done in our life and how we celebrate. And so this is a special time of year uh, that we set aside to honor that Jesus came from the book of Matthew. Matthew was an apostle of the Lord, and he had the honor of having his gospel, his good news as the first book in the New Testament. And as we look at that, very intelligent, very mathematical, very strategic in the way he thinks and he puts his words together, he, would, he was a tax collector. His name was Matthew, but also known as Levi. And he would have been very articulate in the Greek language because of his position. He would have been well organized. But he also would have been considered a traitor. He would have been hated by his countrymen because he served the Roman government in collecting taxes. And as we look at that, this book, and Matthew has a special place in all of the Gospels, all of the good news stories, of all of those, his is the most Jewish in nature. He uses Jewish customs and traditions to explain the story of Jesus. But what I want us to understand this morning is that even though he wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, that the Word of God is the Word of God for the people of God. And so it's always applicable to our lives. And, and Matthew followed after the Lord. He was an eyewitness of all that Jesus came to do and did do. And Matthew does two things. He introduces Israel to Jesus. And he lets them know that they have rejected their own Messiah. What a terrible thing to do. Uh, he lets them know that they have rejected Jesus, that they have refused to believe that he is the Messiah. And the reason why they refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah is because he did not meet their expectations. He did not come as a political leader to boot the Roman government out, but he came as a religious leader. He came as a spiritual leader to bring Israel back to God. That's what Jesus came for. He came to do that. And so uh, we see this special really what I would call the greatest story that has ever been told here in the book of Matthew. And it's shared again in Luke. And even John has something to say about Jesus coming in the flesh. And Matthew 
here in telling the story is encouraging us to look at Jesus. He's encouraging Israel to take a closer look at Jesus. And one of the themes of all of the Gospels is, what will you do with Jesus? You cannot escape that question in your life. It is foremost and it is center in your life. You may try to ignore it. You may try to get around it. But at some point in your life, you will have to deal with the question, what will I do with Jesus? Pilate had to deal with Jesus. The Bible tells us he washed his hands of it. But what will we do with Jesus? How will we decide to answer this question, even by averting the question, even by ignoring the question? We really are answering the question, for to ignore it, we are rejecting him just as Israel did. No one will escape that decision. As we look at Matthew, he's trying to show Israel that Jesus has fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy of what it requires to be the Messiah. He's proving to them that Jesus is the one that they have been looking for for all of their life. And how does he do that? He starts in a very strange way. How many have read the first chapter of Matthew? It starts by this person begat that person. And that person begat another person. And this father begat that father. And you, and you see the genealogy and the lineage of Jesus being described. And what Matthew is doing is he is proving that Jesus is both a son of David but meets all of the requirements to be their Messiah. But what I find very interesting is that there are four women mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. I find this very unique because women were not referred to in lineages most of the time. They were not referred to in the genealogies in most of, uh, of the Bible. But yet here we see the mention of them. Matthew points out that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. He's the legal father of Jesus, but not the biological father. That Mary is the biological mother, but yet also the claim that Jesus has to the lineage of David comes through her. Matthew connects Jesus with Abraham and with David. And he shows and he proves to the Israelites that Jesus had both a legal and a biological claim to say that he is the Messiah. These women, four women, I believe they're a description of God's grace. How God can use unlikely people in great ways. Aren't you thankful that God can take the unlikely and use them in great ways? And we, we see this. I believe that's why it's pointed out. I believe that's why God allowed it to be pointed out because He wants us to know that despite how unlikely we may feel, how lowly, how poor, whatever it might be, that God is able to use the unlikely person to accomplish great things in His kingdom. 
We see this, and Jesus is acquainted with these. His lineage includes them. Through this lineage, Jesus identifies with the fallen, the lowly, the poor, the outcast, the foreigner, and the sinner. He is representative, and he represents the fallen state of all mankind, although he was never fallen and never sinned. And One of the first things that Matthew points out is the virgin birth of Jesus. You see, we can never overemphasize the virgin birth of Jesus. It is important. It matters. There are people who will deny that. Supposed biblical scholars who will say that that was not true, that it stretched the boundaries. But without the virgin birth, it would not have been possible for Jesus to fulfill all the requirements that were required for him to be the Messiah. He must be fully human, totally sinless, fully God. And it is only the virgin birth that will satisfy all three of those requirements. He was the seed of a woman, it tells us, not the seed of a man. Therefore, he was human. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was fully God. Charles Spurgeon eloquently puts it, He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might not be sinful. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, qualifies to be the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins. All people can come to him for mercy, for forgiveness, for everything that they have need of. And Jesus was the only one the only one who could bridge the gap that sin had created for all of mankind. That relationship that had distance in it because of sin by man. By living as a human, Jesus understands now our feelings, our weaknesses, all of those things. As the Son of God yet, He has the power to deliver us from the destructive nature of sin. Satan's power uh, has been uh, taken away and our relationship has now been restored to God because of all that Jesus came to do. I look at this story and it's miraculous in nature. It's different. It's unusual. But I can associate with Joseph. He didn't understand. I believe that Mary had tried to tell him. But how many knows that that's a story that's hard to believe? And without faith, Joseph could have never believed. And God gave him that angel to come along and to stir his faith and to tell him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. How many knows that we need that touch of faith by the Lord at times? Amen. That we might have the faith to believe just like Joseph needed the faith to believe. What a miraculous uh, story as we look at it. That God is faithful. That God uh, gives us what we have need of. That which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. Every year as I 
read this and reread this, I ask myself the question, and now I ask you, what has God conceived in you by the Holy Spirit? Is there a plan, a dream, a vision, something that God has called you to do by His Holy Spirit because God still conceives works in His children by the Holy Spirit? What has God called you to do? And have you accepted that work of God in your life? Or have you aborted the call of God? Matthew says all of this was done so that the voice of the prophet would come to pass. Isaiah 7.14 tells us, Therefore, the Lord himself. Isn't that exciting? God could have sent somebody else But the Lord Himself comes, and He gives us a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and His name shall be Emmanuel. 700 years before the birth of Christ, this prophecy is given. And I think about that, and... Isaiah would have been considered a false prophet in his day because it didn't come to pass. How many struggle just with a five-minute prayer? Five minutes before, you need help from God, and God hasn't answered it yet. 700 years now, and finally the prophecy of the Lord comes to pass. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come. He has become flesh and blood. Uh, all of his glory, and it is a declaration that God is with us. And that's what I want to center on this morning. God is with us. We sing about it. We talk about it. We use the name Emmanuel. But do we really understand the full scope that God is with us? Not only is it a declaration of His deity and an identification uh, with us and nearness to mankind. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. That's what John says. He has come. He has left the portals of heaven, the glory and the splendor of heaven. Jesus left all of that, that he might come and identify with us, that he might save us from our sin. God with us. Look at your neighbor and say, he's with us. God is with us. What did he do for us? He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He dipped down low to save mankind. He stepped down and accepted the weaknesses and frailties of mankind in our experience. And He came to us so we could come to Him. I think that's so powerful. He came to us so that in turn we could come to Him. Charles Spurgeon uh, says it this way. He says, whoever you may be, You need no priest or intercessor to introduce you to God, for God has introduced himself to you. Isn't that awesome? God uh, has introduced himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. 
What is God like? How does he act? How does he move? How does he do things? When we look at the person of Jesus Christ, we get a picture of who God is and what God does. Uh, Jesus came to introduce us to God. For God was to mankind seemingly far off, but he's not. He's near us. He's with us. He's for us and not against us. God is with us. You know, if you were to, when she was living, go to see Queen Elizabeth, you couldn't just walk in the castle, give her a high five and say, what's going on, Liz? That's not protocol. That's not accepted. Because you had to be introduced to her. And here comes Jesus. And he introduces us to our Heavenly Father. What a powerful picture. And Jesus comes and he introduces God the Father to us. For we had lost that relationship with him as mankind. Adam and Eve sinned and God literally comes down into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? There's a distance, there's a separation, but Jesus steps into the picture and he says, come, come with me. I want to introduce you again to the Father. Comes to introduce us to Jesus. He's with us. He's with us. Do we get that picture? Psalm 46, 7, 11, both tell us. Both of those say the exact same words. I believe the Lord's trying to tell us something. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. Let me go to a restaurant. You ever been in a restaurant that had a hostess? That's not this one. It's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the host of heaven's armies. The Lord, the host of heaven's armies, is with us. Everything that we have need of can be supplied through his presence. Everything that comes against us can be defeated by the Lord of hosts. Any principality, any power, any ruler of darkness can be taken care of because the Lord, the King of hosts, is with us. We shall not be defeated because He is with us. Powerful presence of the Lord. The God of Jacob is our refuge. It's a place that we can run to and hide and take shelter. He's not far off. He's with us. That's one of the central messages of Christmas, that God has come. Verse 5. And this is a message to Israel, but also to the church. Verse 5 of the same chapter. God is in the midst of His church, of Israel. He's with us. Aren't you glad that you can feel His presence? As the word comes forth, as the worship has been lifted up to heaven, and God is in the midst of His bride, He's in the midst of His church, He is here with us, the Bible tells us. And because of His presence, though the world may come against us, 
Though earth may come against us, though enemies may come against us, we shall not be moved because He is with us. We take a stand in the Lord because He's with us. We shall not be moved. And God will help her. Let me can testify that God has helped you. God has helped us. His presence is with us. What a powerful presence of God that is with us each and every day. And I want that thought to come alive in you as we go throughout this season. We call it a season of Christmas. It really is a season of being a a life season of knowing that Jesus is always with you. He never leaves nor forsakes you. He is there with you. And if He is with you or for you, what shall be against you? And then I love the way this ends. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. When it seems so dark and so dreary, and it seems impossible. God shows up. Kentucky vernacular, just in the nick of time. He's there. He's with you. He's for you. Aren't you thankful for his presence this morning? Hallelujah.